This message first aired on the radio on February 13th, 2004. 1 Corinthians 14 today, we're following on our discussion yesterday, chapter 12 and chapter 13. We're taking up this discussion of the miraculous gift, specifically of languages or tongues. And we have so much said here in the 14th chapter about that particular gift. And it did rank last on the list of the gifts as we looked upon the operations of God, the administrations that people were placed into. It is as if that God has given to us this detailed examination because, of course, he that knew the end from the beginning knew that in the days that we live and in the former days, oh, let's just say the last 150 years or so, that this matter would come up as a very big issue. And the alleged miraculous speaking in languages is not only known in Christianity, and I say alleged because, of course, it doesn't happen, but it's also been noted among religious groups around the world, even in Hinduism and other pagan religions. And so we need to take a good, solid look at the 14th chapter, and that's what we're going to do today, to see exactly what the apostle said about this charismatic gift that certainly did operate in Corinth and just as certainly is not operating in any church of God anywhere in the world today. So we'll look at the 14th chapter beginning with the first verse and remember that we've come off of this strong statement of the 13th verse of the 13th chapter and now abides or lasts or rests permanently faith, hope, and love these three, but the greatest of these is love. And of course, we saw in the 13th chapter that both faith and hope operate through the principle of agape, principled love that we find in God the Father and that's reflected and created in our new nature. Well, now, chapter 14, follow after love and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy. Now, this answers back to the verse that began the 13th chapter, which really is the last verse of the 12th chapter, wherein you may recall, we looked at the verse 31 of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, but you covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet I will show you the road to excellence. Now I've given my own view on how that should read, but it's not that he's promoting them to desire strongly, the charismatic gifts. He's just pointing out to them that they do desire strongly the most eminent charismata, but I will show you the road of excellence. Now he showed them the road of excellence in chapter 13, and he comes down to the 14th chapter first verse where he says, follow after love, which is the road to excellence, follow after the excellent way, and go ahead and keep having strong desires for spiritual things. That's what he says here, for the spiritual. He told them in chapter 12, he observed, you seem to have a strong desire of the eminent charismata, and I'm going to show you, instead of that, an excellent way, or the road to excellence. Now he shows them the road of excellence, which is agape, and he says, follow after agape, or love, and go ahead and have strong desires for the spiritual things. For the spiritual things, but rather that you may prophesy. He says, now as we look at the positive spiritual gifts or the, the spiritual things that include, I mean, not all spiritual things include the charismatic. In the context here, he's talking about the charismatic gifts. 
And he's saying, go ahead and have strong desires for these gifts. After all, they still operate in Corinth. So go ahead and have a desire for these things, but let's rank them. In fact, desire more that you would prophesy rather than speak in languages. And clearly here, just by the devotion of the amount of text, of the amount of writing of the Apostle Paul as he answers the issue of how do we manage these charismata that are operating in our midst, clearly the issue is the speaking with other languages. This has to be managed somehow in the church. And now he goes through a discussion of why it is that prophecy is vastly superior to the speaking in other languages. Why it is that prophecy is vastly superior to the speaking of other languages. And he does exactly what we think he would do. He appeals to the principles that he's already laid down. So, verse 2, He that speaks in a tongue, or in a foreign language, speaks not unto men, but unto God. Now, some would take this and say, Well, you see, he's speaking unto God. This is a special way to speak unto God. That's not at all what he's saying. He's saying the one who speaks in a foreign language, God only knows what he's saying. In other words, he's saying he's not speaking to men. He's speaking only to God because if, except that there be an interpretation or except he's speaking in the language of the people, only God knows what he's saying. So he says he that speaks in a foreign language speaks not unto men but unto God for no man understands. Howbeit in the spirit he speaks mysteries. In other words, in his spirit he may be speaking mysteries. He may be saying the most profound things in spirit. But what's coming out of his mouth, God only knows what it is. Nobody can understand it. And what's the result of that? Well, the result of that is nobody's edified by that. It's a marvelous thing. They say, wow, you know, he's speaking in a language. Wonder what he's saying. I don't get edified by, wow, you're speaking in a foreign language. That's very interesting. But what did you say? And I've been in situations many times where I'll listen to people carry on in a foreign language. Then I'll turn to one who stands by and I'll say, well, by his facial expression, he seems to be earnest enough. Maybe he's even bothered by it. I noticed he seems maybe a little angry. What did he say? And then maybe I hear back, well, he says he's trying to be polite. But if you'll notice, you're standing on his foot and he wants you to get up. Well, until I get interpreted, there's no edifying. There's no building this guy up. All it is, I'm standing on his foot. That's what the scripture says here in verse 2. Not that he has special messages from him to God. Well, we all have special messages from ourselves to God. Those we can't even speak about. Those are groanings too deep to be uttered. And the Holy Spirit takes those and he presents them on our behalf so we don't ever have to worry about how are we going to say them. But here's somebody that has something to say. He's got a foreign language. He's got something to say. And it could be prayer. It could be petition. We don't know what it is because it's in a foreign language that nobody understands. Verse 3, He that prophesies speaks unto men to edification and exhortation and encouragement or comfort. And so here we see that the, the one who prophesies is on the principle of not being blown up, but building up. Not being a blow-up guy, not being some kind of balloon in the church who's all full of hot air or full of air and full of himself, but rather he's operating through love because love is kind. Love seeks not its own. Love seeks to build up others. 
And so now he's laying out the principle he's just taught. He's just taught about the principle of agape. And he says, you see, when one speaks in a language, and it's assuming, by the way, that nobody can understand it, then he's not on the principle of edification. He's on the principle of just exercising himself. And he may be saying wonderful things. After all, he's speaking in a miraculous language. He could be saying wonderful things. But what good does it do to the church, which is his body? What does, good does it do to the body of Christ when, in fact, nobody understands what he's saying? Well, as I say, even this now is pointed out while the charismatic gifts are operating for obvious reasons. And then he says in verse 4, we turn to 14th chapter, verse 4, He that speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he that prophesies edifies the church. Now, this, I believe, is a figure. He says he edifies himself. Well, edification has to do with the building of the building. We go all the way back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we discover that the building is the actual assembly in Corinth, in the local instance. And the building that this is talking about is not you yourself, but the building that God talks about in light of our assembling together is the church, specifically the local church. So he's talking about building. He says, the one that speaks in a language, a foreign language, edifies himself. Well, this is actually a, a criticism. He builds himself up. He builds up himself. Now, it's not necessarily the case that he's puffing himself up, so the apostle backs off of that charge. But he says this fellow is just exercising himself. It's as if he's doing some kind of a sit-up or a push-up, and it's not good for the church, even if it may be good for him. By the way, it's likely not good for him either because it's possible he also doesn't understand anything of what he's saying. In fact, it appears that he didn't understand anything he was saying because another one standing by may be needed to interpret. And, of course, he may also not be needed to interpret. I believe the way that this, this marvelous gift of language worked is that you either could or could not interpret what you were saying, but certainly somebody should or could be able to interpret. And as this was going on without interpretation, the apostle in this letter, I'll give you a clue, he's going to outlaw the use of the gift in the assembly if there is not somebody to interpret what's being said. We come to verse 5, and he points out, well, these miraculous gifts, listen, I have no problem with miraculous gifts. That's what the Apostle says. And I want to tell you, I line up right with the Apostle. I have no problem with the operation of miraculous gifts whatsoever. I certainly believe in the gift of tongues, and I believe that it operated in the early church. It's a reversal of Babel, and it's a fulfillment of Scripture, which we'll come to in the 14th chapter here. But they do not operate. That gift does not operate today. Neither do other of the sign gifts which were to the unbelievers. Now here the apostle said, I would that you all spake with tongues. You see, he doesn't say, seek not and forbid not. He'll just say, forbid not. He said, I would that all of you were gifted with the gift of tongues. And of course, he's telling them, desire strongly that you'd prophesy. So he also desires that they would all prophesy even more. See, he said, I would that you all spake with tongues, but rather... It'd be even better if you all prophesied. For greater is he that prophesies than he that speaks with tongues. Except there be an interpretation, 
or except he interpret, that the church may receive edifying. Now he says prophecy is greater than the gift of tongues because of the effect of the operation, which is the edification of the church. Now except in the case of speaking in tongues where it's interpreted, now that will edify the church also because we'll know what he's saying. Now brethren, if I come unto you, verse 6, speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you? If I come to you speaking a foreign language, what is your profit? And the answer, of course, is no profit at all, except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by teaching. Now he says, the only way that I can benefit you is that I speak to you by revelation, that I have some subject material, brand new subject material, that's given to me, that's never been given before, and I deliver it to you. Let me speak for a moment about revelation, because I think that this is also something not very well understood. People say, I have a revelation, this was revealed to me. Let me tell you, there's only one revelation that operates today among the believers, and that is the revelation to each and every single one of the believers of who Jesus Christ really is. Flesh and blood does not reveal that to us. We hear from flesh and blood, but our Father in heaven makes that known to us that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord Jesus Christ in his marvelous way at the new birth, just as he made it known to the apostle Peter. The Lord told Peter, he said, Who do you say I am? And Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the Lord Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonas, or son of a dove, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. So it is only according to the Father's will and to a special revelation to you that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That being said, there is no more revelation, and we don't need it because that which is perfect has come. So it's very important that there's no new revelation for us. If there were new revelation, then God would give us a means to compile it. He would give us a means to keep compilation. And every church would ha be having to keep a complete record of whatever revelation was being given to whomever it was given. But that's not the case. That's not the way God operated. He didn't need to keep a compendium other than the compendium that he has delivered to us, the Word of God, the Scriptures. We don't need revelation, but we need the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the same spirit that revealed. We need that same spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What we really need, we need to study the scriptures. And in order to do that effectively, and to, in order to do that earnestly, in order to reasonably give ourselves wholly to the scriptures, we must conclude that the scriptures are all that God has given to us, they are God-breathed by Him. We're not lacking anything. We have a new nature that's responsive to the Scriptures. We have the Scriptures available to us, and we're happily able to drink them. And when we fill this earthen water pot with the water of the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, through the agency of His Holy Spirit and the new nature He's given to us, will turn that water into wine. Well, we see now... The apostle talks about, I need to speak to you by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by teaching. And he's talking about all those other gifts and he's saying these now edify. But what doesn't edify you is somebody speaking in a foreign language that you don't understand. 
We're going to come back with more of BibleStudy.net. I'm John Malone. Stay with us. It's going to be worth it. Now takes up the analogy of the sounds that we hear in the world in order to show to us why it is that speaking in tongues without an interpretation is useless in the house of God, which is the church. He says, verse 7, and here we'll take up verses 7 through 12, even things without life giving sound, that is, lifeless things which give sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is piped or harped? Here he takes up a wind instrument, like a flute, and a string instrument, such as a harp. Here a string instrument, translated harp. He said, even these lifeless things, except that there be distinction in sound, that is, that there be a mixture of sound and silence, plus there be a, an alteration in the sound, some kind of logical sequence in the sounds, how is it that we would understand it? How can they be, without a distinction in sounds, how will it be known what is piped or harp? That is, you won't know the melody. You won't even recognize it as music if there's not a distinction in the sounds. So here he's making an analogy to the speaking in tongues without an interpretation. And he's saying even with the most normal mentality, we think about natural things. We think about things that we use to make music, such as flutes and harps. And these are not useful to us. We do not recognize them as making music if there's no distinction in the sound. Now he makes another analogy, verse 8. And if the trumpet gives an uncertain sound, who will prepare to battle? Or who will prepare himself to the battle? Now I think this goes back to chapter 13 and verse 1 where he said, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels. Remember, that's the same tongue. Men and angels speak in the same languages. And have not love, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Now the sounding brass and tinkling cymbal inaugurated a call to worship in the temple ordinances among the Jews. And here he now says, if a trumpet give an uncertain sound, who will prepare himself to the battle? So here's an assembling call of a trumpet. And he says, if that is not a recognizable sound, if that's not an understandable sound, no one will respond in the way that it's intended. So whether it be reveille or a call to arms or whatever the trumpet sound is designated to be for, and in all times, trumpets have been used to call men to battle with certain sounds, not with undistinguishable sounds. There's a certain sound to march, there's a certain sound to halt, uh, there's a certain sound to stop, to retreat, to charge, and to assemble for battle or prepare for battle. And if it gives an uncertain sound, or really uncertain means an undistinguishable or a sound that does not appear clear, does not communicate something of substance, who will get ready for battle? And the answer, of course, is no one. So the apostles now using analogies of the world to demonstrate that never would it be the case that someone should speak in a language that no one understands. Now he says, verse 9, So likewise... Except you utter by the tongue words easy to be understood, or at least able to be understood, as it might otherwise read. Except you utter by the tongue something that's comprehensible, something that's understandable, intelligible words, how shall it be known what is spoken? You'll be speaking into the air. You'll just be talking into the air. Now, today, unhappily, what poses as the gift of languages, and of course, I have to say it every time, there is no gift of languages today. 
people are doing just that. They're speaking off into the air. They're jabbering something totally unintelligible. It's not even a foreign language. But even if it were a foreign language that no one understood, which it's not, it is not sensible to speak in that foreign language. Now, I've been in places where, broadly speaking, the congregation does not understand the language in which I preach. And it doesn't do me one bit of good to stand there and preach to that congregation, no matter how long I preach or short, no matter how good a message or clear it is in English, if there's no translator, there's no reason to speak. One has to have a translator when speaking to people that don't speak your language or you can't speak to them. Should go without saying, but does not go without saying. In fact, it needed to be said about this gift. And as we see the controversy around this gift as it operated, and as we see now that the apostle has already said that this gift will cease, and so will prophecy, and so will knowledge, you begin to see restrictions placed on the operations of those gifts. Especially here, we're going to see restrictions placed on the speaking in tongues, and we're going to see a restriction placed on prophecy. Now many say, well, why would that be? Well, these are truly gifts of the Spirit, but there's a discipline, and there's going to be a discipline placed on them from this time forward here, as the Apostle writes, because these gifts are going to stop, and how will we know that they've stopped without these disciplines? Well, we won't know that they've stopped, but we have these disciplines that the Apostle places upon them, and so the church will have the great benefit of knowing when these stop operating. And as far as tongues goes, as soon as there's no longer a translator, there's to be no exercise of that gift. And also further, we'll see in this chapter, when it comes to the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy, no matter whether a woman is gifted in either of those things or not, she's not to exercise it in the assembly. And that's a new thing here that we'll find in 1 Corinthians 14. Well, here it says now, verse 10, there are, it may be, many kinds of voices in the world. It says, now it could be that there's lots of different sounds in the world, lots of different voices in the world, and none of them is without signification. Now whether that, that doesn't mean if it's human voices or other voices, all sounds in the world have some kind of signification. Therefore, if I don't know the meaning of the voice, I shall be unto him that speaks a barbarian, and he that speaks shall be a barbarian unto me. Now we have this word barbarian, and it's an interesting word. It's an onomatopoetic word from the, just the sounds of bar-bar, infantile sounds. And anybody who is a Greek speaker, and this epistle is written in Greek, so all these people are Greek speakers, Greek speakers know what a barbarian is. A barbarian was someone who could not speak Greek. In fact, he became someone that would be disdained because he was illiterate. And so now the apostle says, there's a lot of voices in the world, there's a lot of sounds, but if there's none of them is without signification, but if I don't know the meaning of the voice that I hear, to me, it's a barbaric voice, and I am one who speaks as a barbarian to the one who does not understand me. And we don't want to be barbarians one to another. We want to be brothers and sisters one to another. Even so, now verse 12, of course, that's an insulting remark. They should very clearly understand that they don't want to be barbarians. Even so, for as much as you are zealous for the spiritual things, seek that you may excel to the edifying of the church. And frankly, that should close the practice point. Now, there's some more that he's going to talk about tongues. But as for the practice, that final statement should close off 
how it's going to be practiced from there on out as far as any spiritual gifts go. And the rule is going to be this. If it builds up the church, then that's the way that it'll be practiced. If it can't edify or build up the church, then it won't be practiced regardless of the gift. Seek in so much as you are zealous for spiritual things, which is the observation he made at the end of chapter 12. He said, seek that you may excel to the edifying of the church. Change the course of your direction. Quit trying to stand out and be blown up and instead exercise for others and build up. And that's the principle that we find threaded throughout the epistle. Of course, it's the principle of agape that is threaded throughout the Christian life, and he sets them on it here in verse 12. So finally, in verse 13, he now gives the command, Wherefore, let him that speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Now, if you're going to speak in a, in a language, then you need to pray that you can interpret it, or pray that somebody interpret it, because there's not going to be any more practice of the speaking in tongues in the church without interpretation so that everybody knows what's being said. And if everybody can't know what's being said, then it's just going to be stopped. Friends, that was when the gift was operating. It was put under this discipline. And if you get a full sense, a sweeping sense, of the entirety of the Scriptures and where they end up in Second Timothy and in First Peter and other passages, then you know exactly why God saw to it that at this time of transition, away from the apostolic church, where Pentecostal gifts function, where charismatic gifts function, then you'll understand exactly why God begins to close them down with disciplines through the transition until that which is perfect is come. That is to say, the entire word of God is placed in the hands of God's people. And now the apostle speaks about what's beneficial for the individual and what's beneficial for the church in light of tongues. He said, if I pray in a language, my spirit prays indeed, but my understanding is unfruitful. Again, he's assuming a true charismatic gift. He says, if I pray in a language that I don't know and that I can't even interpret, well, my spirit is indeed praying. There is something meaning to that prayer, but I don't know what it is, and so my understanding is unfruitful. My spirit may be praying something, but my understanding is not engaged. What is it then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the understanding. I will sing it with the spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. So he's here talking about praying and singing in such a way in the congregation of the believer that his own understanding would be engaged. It doesn't do you any good to pray without your understanding. Otherwise, if you can't be understood, else when thou shalt bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupies the seat of the ungifted say amen at any giving of thanks insofar as he does not understand what you say. Now he's talking about the ungifted person or the person who doesn't have the grace gift or the charisma here or the charismatic gift that you have so he doesn't interpret, he doesn't understand your speaking in tongues. When you pray, he can't say amen. When you sing, he can't sing along with you. So what good is it? What, what good is it? Well, you may be enjoying yourself, he says, but nobody's edified. Verse 17, for verily you give thanks well, you are giving thanks to God, but the other is not built up. Now he says about his own experience, I thank my God, I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church I had rather speak five words with my understanding, that by my voice I might teach others also, 
than 10,000 words in a foreign language. Now, here the apostle makes the analogy of five words of understanding with 10,000 words in a foreign language. He's not forbidding the speaking in tongues, but he's certainly going overboard to tell us how much more favorable it is not only to build up others, but also to have your own understanding engaged than it is to exercise these gifts. Now, with that put in place, and with the fact that the gifts are passing away, certainly this put a real collar and it put a real discipline and it certainly limited the use of foreign languages in the church of god and of course this a temporary measure at part of the phase out part of the bringing in that which is the excellent way until that which is perfect has come this is we might say introduction to the road to excellence now he says brothers do not be children in understanding Now he's taking up this subject of understanding. He's saying, you need to have your understanding engaged. In malice, be children. That is, in the knowledge of evil, be children. In the understanding, in the thoroughgoing understanding of evil, you can be children. But in understanding spiritual things, in taking a hold of this dispensational truth, this truth about the church of God, this truth about the transition from charismatic form to the road to excellence, which is the way of agape, he says, in this thing, be mature, be men about this. And now he begins to give us the dispensational characteristic of the speaking in tongues, the dispensational characteristic. That is to say, God had a purpose, a specific purpose, for bringing the gift of foreign languages, this charismatic gift of people speaking in foreign languages that they never learned, He had a specific dispensational purpose in doing that. And we start that out in verse 21 with a quotation from the prophecy of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 28 and verse, well, we'll start with verse 10. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. Now we have that quoted here in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 21, where it says, In the law it is written. Now you may say the law, I thought that would be the first five books. No, the law is a general term that can mean both the law and the prophets. So here it's including the prophet, and this is the prophet Isaiah. With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people. Now who's this people? And yet for all that they will not hear me, saith the Lord. Well, this people is the nation of Israel. Remember that the Corinthian church is beginning to operate while God still is offering to this people, that is the nation of Israel, to return and set up the millennial kingdom in their behalf. When they finally reject the ministry of the Apostle Paul, God will set them aside. We see that sometime around Acts 28, the very last chapter, very last verse. God finally will set Israel aside. But friends, we're not there yet here as we read contemporaneously in 1 Corinthians. We're here ourselves, but we're not here as we read it. The Corinthians certainly were not there as they read this epistle. Well, we'll come back in a minute and we'll look more at the dispensational aspect of the gift of languages and see what God's doing after this brief announcement. Do stay with us. This is important stuff and it's good stuff. I'm John Malone. This is BibleStudy.net. Now, as we look in this last section concerning tongues, we're looking at verses, really verses 21 
through 35, or really verses uh, 21 through 26, really, uh, concerning the gift of tongues. We have the quotation from Isaiah where it was prophesied that God would speak to his people with a people of other languages or foreign languages and other lips, that is, foreign lips. And this is a prophecy of Isaiah that was fulfilled in his day contemporaneously so that it could be proven that he was a prophet by the Assyrian captivity where 10 of the tribes of Israel were taken into Assyria. It well may also be viewed as fulfilled in the Babylonian captivity where the Chaldean tongue was spoken as the children of Judah were taken into hostage circumstances and then finally into captivity. And here it says in verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 14 something that we ought to pay good attention to. Wherefore, tongues are for a sign not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. Now here we see tongues clearly are a sign. They're part of the signs that are to the children of Israel. They're specifically a sign to those who believe not, to those who harden their heart and would not listen. We see in the gift of tongues a remarkable reversal there at Pentecost of the confusion that God sent at Babel where God confused the languages and thereby stopped people from working together against him. At Pentecost we see a bit of a reversal. It's a sign that God is now having his disciples work in his behalf, his apostles work for him, and so every man who was present heard the apostles speaking in their own languages. It is as if God is reversing the confusion. But this speaking in languages is a sign. It is a sign, a wonder. It is one of God's signs. And God doesn't give signs over and over again. He gives signs for a purpose. And the sign to Israel was clearly the rejection by God of them. Just as it was a sign to Israel of God's displeasure of them when they began to hear the Assyrian tongue, they should have been clear that this is a sign of God's displeasure in the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ when they began to hear miraculous speaking in foreign languages by their own brethren, by their own Jewish brethren, the apostles and the disciples. So tongues are for a sign to them who do not believe. And therefore, as a sign to them that who do not believe, they do not have a lasting place in the church of God, which is to be composed of them who do believe. Now it says, but prophecy on the other hand serves not for them that believe not, for them which believe. And so there were prophets given to the early church. In fact, prophets are part of the foundational work along with the apostles of the early church. The Lord Jesus Christ being the cornerstone and the apostles and prophets being the foundation pieces. Now, I heard the most ridiculous thing about prophecy this weekend. Honestly, I think it's the most ridiculous teaching I ever heard from a fella here in Omaha that New Testament prophets were somehow less accurate than Old Testament prophets. An Old Testament prophet would be stoned to death if he gave out false prophecy because why? Because he was a false prophet. But a New Testament prophet might give a false prophecy. Let me assure you, that is hardly the case. If the Spirit of God moved a man to prophesy, then it was not false. It was true. And it would be judged by the same standard that any prophet ever would be judged. 
just because the Lord's people didn't have the authority to stone somebody to death would be no less reason for rejecting his truth. But it brings up an interesting point, because that's the problem with prophecy. How do you know it's true? And the apostle's going to put some discipline on prophecy, because it's going to stop. And when the, the supernatural gift of prophecy stops, how will you know it stopped, except you have some capability of saying, that's not true. And of course, the reason that we have the capability of saying that's not true is because we have the entire Word of God given to us and a standard by which any statements in the church can today, or that, even in that day, be judged. Now, in, in the day when the supernatural gift of prophecy was operating, a false prophet might still come in, a false prophet might come in, and then he would have to be judged by true prophets. Today, we're not under that kind of warning. Today, we have more mature advice given to us in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. And it's an interesting way that it's put here by Peter when he writes the epistle. This is his last epistle. But there were false prophets also among the people. He means the people of Israel. The context of this passage in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 is hearkening back to Israel. It says that Israel had false prophets among them. Some of them are named Zedekiah, son of Chenina, for example. There are others. Even as there shall be false teachers among you. Now, the Christians are warned, believers are warned in 2 Peter 2, not that false prophets would be among us, but that false teachers would be among us who sneak in and bring in damnable or condemnable heresies, schisms, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bringing upon to themselves swift destruction. So there in Second Peter, we're not warned about false prophets because prophecy ceased, and we don't have to worry about any prophets. Prophecy ceased. We have to worry about false teachers. And let me tell you, there are many, many, many false teachers today because those having itching ears, those who want to have a message that they like to hear, people have come to the place where they will pile up and heap up to themselves teachers because their ears itch all the time and they need a lot of fingers to scratch them. So they'll pile up a big heap of false teachers and there will be few, really relatively speaking, few who are teaching the truth. That's part of the age that we live in. No surprise, we see that in the scripture. In the day of Elijah, he had to face 850 false prophets. One of him, 850 false prophets, and the king of Israel had the temerity and the gall to call Elijah the troubler of Israel. Imagine that. Well, here we see tongues were a sign, especially a sign to the children of Israel. The scripture teaches us this. The Jews seek after a sign, the Gentiles seek after a wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Greeks foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is Christ the power of God. And now we see that prophecy, on the other hand, compared to tongues. And remember, among the charismatic gifts, he recommended and commended to them that they should prophesy. He said, this is the top end prophetic gift because it builds up the church. So here he says, But prophecy doesn't serve them that believe not, but for those who believe. If therefore the whole church be come together in one place, now this has to do, they hear the church all coming together, the church is his people, all coming together in one place, and all speak with languages or tongues, 
And there come in those who are unlearned. That is to say, in comes the ones who are ungifted. They don't have charismatic gifts. They're unlearned. They sit in the seat of the ungifted. This word has to do with a charismos. That is, they don't have spiritual gifts. Or an unbeliever, one of those come in, and they see you speaking with other languages. Aren't they going to say you're mad? They'll just say you're crazy. But if all prophesy, and there comes in one that believes not, or one who is ungifted, he's convicted of all, he is judged of all. That is to say, the word of God penetrates his heart. It says the secrets of his heart are made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. Friends, the good testimony to Jesus Christ, the persuasive testimony to the believer, is not charismatic gifting. It's not some great show. It is that all of God's people have a clear sense of God's purpose and God's will. They are on the road to the more excellent way. But we don't need to seek that we prophesy because also prophecy is a gift that ceases. And the apostle knows that. And so there's going to be discipline laid down here in 1 Corinthians 14 also for the exercise of that gift. And we'll see that now as we look in the 28th verse and forward. How is it then, brethren, when you come together, each one of you or every one of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation? Now, again, I've heard ridiculous things that this envisions some kind of house church where everyone comes together among God's people prepared to give rather than to receive. Let me tell you, it's more blessed to give than receive. And God's people ought to come together prepared with something that they have from God, whether it's a psalm, some kind of teaching. Of course, you can't come with a language because you don't have foreign language. You don't have one. You can't come with a revelation. You don't have one of those. You can't come with an interpretation of a foreign language because you can't come with those. But you can come with teaching. You can come with a psalm. You can come with a giving of thanks upon your heart. You can come prepared to thank God in the public place before other believers. And churches can accommodate such preparation. I won't go through all about how you have to do that because these arrangements are simple and they're easy and don't need to be taught. We just need to have liberty to give praise to God. It says, however you do this, let all things be done to edifying. Verse 28, that is, the focus should be to build up God's people. If any man speaks in a tongue, now here's the discipline he puts in. If any man speaks in a tongue, let it be two or at the most three, and that in turn, one at a time. By course, it says, or in turn, one at a time, and let one interpret. So no interpretation, no tongue. How many speakers in tongues in a gathering? Two or at the most three, one at a time. But if there be no interpreter, then there will be silence. Let him be silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Now, if he's going to do that, he's going to do it silently. He's going to do it silently. You want God to hear you and you hear you only speak quietly. And so the tongues were disallowed except they could be interpreted and they were disallowed after three. If you were the fourth one to speak, you were to be silent. And it says, let the prophets speak two or three and let the other prophets judge. And so prophecies were also limited to two or at the most three and the others were to judge. And if anything be revealed to one who sat by, let the first stop talking, hold his peace and sit down. For you may all prophesy one by one 
that all may learn and all may be comforted. But you may all do it, but only two or three in a gathering. Now this kind of limitation, friends, is put on the assembly in Corinth because they were misbehaving themselves. Because they were misbehaving themselves with the true charismatic gifts. And if the apostle could see what's going on with the false charismatic gifts, he would think he was in a pagan temple today. And that's a fact. So here now he says the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Some would say, well, how is it that I can do this? How can you put these restrictions on me? This is a gift of God. It should be unrestricted. And he's pointing out that's not a spirit of a prophet. The spirit of the prophet subjects himself to others. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. And now he puts on an interesting tag here, and I think that there's a lot to be said for what he says. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. Now here he commands silence of the women in the context of what he's giving here. Does that mean I don't think the women can sing along with a hymn? Of course not. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about in the context of addressing the congregation. Does this mean I think women should not give announcements? Yes. Does this mean I don't think that women shouldn't be teaching in the assembly? Yes. I believe that that's what it means. It says they are commanded to be under obedience, which is silence, as also saith the law. Women were not allowed to be prophets in the church. You say, well, there I saw women who were prophets. There were seven sisters who were prophets. Yes, but they are hereby outlawed from prophesying in the church, hereby in 1 Corinthians 14, from this time forward. Women were speaking in tongues, no doubt about it. I'm sure that they were gifted in foreign languages, just as brothers were. But I'll tell you, they were forbidden from exercising their charismatic gift in the assembly of the believers. In fact, they were even limited from asking questions during the teachings. It says, if they will learn anything, verse 35, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the assembly. And I'll tell you, I've heard J. Vernon McGee speak this for many years as I've listened to him. He says, he posits this. I don't know where he got it, but I think he's right. If women quit speaking in so-called tongues today, the modern charismatic movement would cease. And I think that's true. Nevertheless, a woman is to be silent in the church. I know that's not a popular statement to say. Women should not be teaching. It doesn't say that women should be addressing the congregation. It says that women should not be addressing the congregation, even so much as to ask questions during the teaching. Of course, that implies that brothers are free to ask questions during the teaching. And I think if churches allowed questions when fellows are teaching falsely, like so many do, then they would be guarded from a lot of trouble. And, and I'll tell you that we practice this in our own church, that brothers are free to ask questions in the middle of the ministry anytime they want to. And, of course, they're going to get an answer or not, depending on the question, so they also must be prepared for that. Well, what came the Word of God? Verse 36. Came the Word of God out from you or came it to you only? That's what he's asking the Corinthians. He says, you're so high-minded. Do you think the word of God started with you or ended with you? No, of course not. And he says, if any man thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, then he'll acknowledge that the things I write unto you are the commandments, not of Paul, but of the Lord. And if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. Now he says this, Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy and forbid not to speak with tongues. And remind you, he didn't say seek not forbid not he just said forbid not and we won't forbid to speaking in tongues 
but we don't have to worry about it because they're not happening today. I'm John Malone. This is BibleStudy.net. We'll be back next time with the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, another great time, and may God bless you until we come together again.